Hi, everyone. Thanks so much, Shaheen. Um, I am really pleased uh, to be here tonight, and I too want to acknowledge that we are in Nungabuja, um, to acknowledge um, that this is indeed a place of many, many stories, um, and to acknowledge elders past, present, and of course, the community of elders who are yet to emerge, and the incredible community of Nunga activists um, and pioneers who we are seeing all around us uh, constantly, in particular want to um, greet and thank for their presence today, all indigenous Australians. I say that with um, quotation marks. Um, who are in the room with us today. So I want to um, begin by introducing um, the panel, and then we're going to cut straight to a film clip, um, and then we'll start our discussion. We don't have long, but we're going to pack a big punch. So... I'm going to begin by introducing... They're sitting in the wrong order. Anna Arabindan Kesson, who is an art historian, a writer, and a curator. She's an assistant professor of black diasporic art. That is definitely a title that is goals, with a joint appointment in the departments of African American Studies and Art and Archaeology at Princeton University. In her research and teaching, she focuses on black diaspora and British art with an emphasis on histories of race, empire, and medicine. Very importantly, her first book, Black Bodies, White Gold, Art, Cotton, and Commerce in the Atlantic World, is available now for pre-order from Duke University Press. Get online and get it. Welcome, Anna. Dr. Hannah McGlade is an indigenous human rights lawyer. She's an associate professor at Curtin's Law School, and she's a member of the UN Permanent Forum for Indigenous Issues. She has published widely, and her book, Our Greatest Challenge, Aboriginal Children and Human Rights, received the Stanner Award in 2011. Hannah has been at the forefront of the development of key organizations in Perth and in WA in relation to Aboriginal women, legal support, Noongar Radio, Stolen Generations, Healing, She's done tons of work in law reform. She's one of the most fierce uh, women I know. And in many ways, she is our Brian Stevenson. She is literally, like the movie, A Just Mercy, she is our version of that, absolutely. So please welcome Hannah McGrady. Professor Subendi Pereira is John Curtin Distinguished Professor and Research Professor of Cultural Studies in the School of Media, Culture, and Creative Arts. She's published widely on issues of social justice, including decolonization, race, ethnicity, and multiculturalism. She's written on refugee topics, critical whiteness studies, and Asian-Australian studies. She has combined her academic career far and wide with participation in policymaking, public life, and activism and much like Hannah, is a powerhouse who seems to be able to span working in academia and working in the world in ways that seem effortless. So thank you very much, Wendy. So there's a film, um, and we're gonna show the first few minutes of it because it gets to the heart of many of the questions that we wanna talk about today. Um, so we'll use it as a kind of prompt to get us into the conversation. Do we have the clip ready to play? 
Baal Quell. We will say their names. On the 12th of June 2020, in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter marches across Australia, names of some of the 437 Aboriginal people who have died in police custody were projected on the Rainbow Sculpture, a local monument by artist Marcus Canning. The sculpture sits at number one Canning Highway, overlooking the Durbel Yirrigan, Swan River, in Walyalla, the port of Fremantle, Western Australia. The site of these video projections between the river and the sea, overlooking the port of Fremantle and in the distance Wadjamup, Rottnest Island, the largest deaths in custody site in Australia, is one that carries layers of historical significance. Directly above is Catonement Hill, the seat of British military occupation, reminding us of the colonial monuments being pulled down across the world. The projections bring this site and its effaced layers of violence into focus anew. The Prime Minister thinks that Black Lives Matter should not be imported into this country from overseas. He said we had no slavery in this country. The first building erected in the Swan River Colony was the Roundhouse in Fremantle. It was built in 1830 to incarcerate Aboriginal men who resisted colonists' attempt to enslave and indenture them to wealthy pastoralists. Many of the men forcibly taken in neck chains to Rottnest, Wadjamup, died at the island. Many were executed and this island is the largest mass grave in Australia today. At night, the families would signal to their imprisoned kin on Wadjamup through secret fires on Cantonment Hill. Hundreds of these men would never see their countries again. Rotnest is called the Black Man's Grave and may not after all be such a delightful spot in which to pass the idle hour as one might fancy. When we say Black Lives Matter here in Australia, we are speaking of Miss Do, Shadina Wynne, Chad Riley, Joyce Clark, and many more. We remember the two young men who died after being chased into the Durbel Yerrigan River on a cold and windy day by police. So the, the, the two of you um, were involved, of course, in the making of this um, film, and it, there's more to it. Um, but I'm interested in talking a little bit about why you decided to make this film, what the, what the impetus was for the film. Maybe you want to start, Savannah? Yeah. So um, this is the first five minutes of a 10-minute film that um, um, yeah, Hannah and I and a couple of others have been involved with and it's work in progress. So the voice that you heard, the male voice that you heard is the voice of uh, Lynn Collard that um, Shaheen mentioned. Um, so we're still putting the titles on it. We made this film really after a couple of, after a couple of days of the Black Lives Matter protests um, when they began in the US, Shaheen, Hannah, and I had a series of conversations and we wanted to kind of uh, stage something local. And there were two things that were kind of central to our idea of the film. 
One was, as Shaheen said, visual culture. We wanted to do something uh, that would be seen, you know, say their names, see their names. And we were very aware of people doing all kinds of creative things on the streets at the time of the lockdown. So people were standing on their local you know, corner holding up uh, signs. And we wanted to do our equivalent of that. So we looked at our local landmark. But we didn't just pick any landmark. We also wanted to think about the idea of the monument. Uh, and when we talk about monuments, people often think that it means statues. But we think that visual culture and monumentality is something much larger than that. It's wider than that. I sit in this room and I look at the displays, uh, the display cabinets, and I look at you know um, what's in those cabinets when I came in here. And I think this also is monumentality. It's uh, what is kind of exalted. Um, and we think of monumentality also, it's a kind of infrastructure. So we, had, we chose Canning Highway, a sculpture by an artist called Marcus Canning. These were not accidental. They are part of the monumental infrastructure of the state. And we wanted to connect that with the notion of uh, black lives and the taking of black lives and the denial of um, the, the genocide against black lives. Hannah, I'm interested in, so in part this conversation, to, to sort of frame it a little bit for, for people, although I imagine that you've all shown up knowing what you're in for. Uh, but to frame it a, a little bit, you know, we of course are having this conversation uh, in the context of very real effects of racism and sexism on people's lives today. And much of your work, Hannah, is centered on protecting the rights of indigenous people in a, a system in which um, uh, black people turn up dead very often. So I suppose the question for me is for an activist like yourself, why does art matter? This is part of the, the way that we want to think about this conversation. And so in what ways does art matter to someone who is concerned with um, black lives? Well, I guess this is public art and activism for human rights, and that's always been a part of what Indigenous people have done, and I'm just remembering um, the rallies that were held a long time ago, and the older activists, some who are no longer here, uh, would stop at some of the um, settler colonial figures and, um, you know, protest. Um, I remember my mum giving um, a former Prime Premier Carmen Lawrence some um, flower outside one of the um, statues. Um, but yeah, I mean, art is definitely a part of our life. And uh, although the investment certainly isn't there, it's also really important to healing. But this was a, a memorial that I was really happy to be a part of to highlight the deaths in custody. And uh, we're now approaching 30 years since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody and some of those protests for that Royal Commission actually happened just around here. Um, it's fitting in some ways that the, this session is around invisibility. It will not have been missed by people that we are meeting in a week in which there has been a lot of visibility around rape and sexual violence. Um, and of course, it, 
I have been thinking a lot about the fact that um, Ms. Du was 22 years old, of course, um, when she was killed. And um, of course, Brittany Higgins is a young woman who is in her 20s. And I think it's really important to note the differential, the differential attention that different lives garner. Um, how much pain we feel. And I think it's really important to feel pain for what Brittany Higgins has gone through, so this is in no way to diminish that pain. But it is to talk a little bit about how we make certain pain more visible. Um, so I guess, Anna, that's my question for you, is what is the, the role of art in helping to make what is not visible, visible? Um, I, so, can I just start with this work? This is by a New York-based artist, Hank Wallace Thomas, um, and it's called, oh, I always forget the name, um, The Writings on the Wall, and this is a projection of prisoners or incarcerated people's writing, poetry, note-taking, uh, about their fear of COVID, um, and it's been projected onto the New York essentially like criminal, de criminal department buildings. Um, and Hank is an artist who, some of you may know, he does a lot of work around advertising and branding, um, but he's also an activist and he works very closely with um, a lot of different communities. But I think your question about, about pain and invisibility, um, I think one of the really powerful things that Hank's work revolves around is creating the space for <clears throat> not just histories, but I think language and um, ways of speaking that perhaps are not, not visible, but also we're not listening for those, for those ways. And so, so this is a, a light projection that Hank worked on with a colleague, um, but he's, he's also, and this is another work um, by Kehinde Wiley, um, this was a, a, yeah, this was a, a monument that he put up in Times Square towards the end of 2019. Um, it's called Rumors of War, and it's a, it's a riff on the, those sort of monumental sculpt, statues and sculptures of Confederate heroes. So this is directly in conversation with um, Another sculpture which you can't really see, but um, but again, you know, like Kahindi's work has a young African American man sitting on the horse in what would we call like urban streetwear. You know, um, he looks like he's from a um, an MTV video, and that's but it, it's putting it's putting these figures and these these people, not not bodies, but people, into onto a different um, platform, giving them a different space of visibility. So in that sense, I think. Art is a, is a portal, um, and it activates these histories. Thanks, Anna. Shaheen, you said in your opening remarks that statues shouldn't be torn down. So I want to push you around that one a little bit. Why not? I quite enjoyed some of the statues coming down, I will say. I think the um, Edward Colston statue in Bristol coming down um, and then particularly Banksy's evocation of what might be done um, in its place was interesting and important. But I think um, statues coming down connotes a, a sort of violence and an opposition and a, you know, 
um, enforces a polarity between people, between people that you know love the statues and, and respect the history that they know and understand and that has been monumentalised. Um, and, and the desecration of those statues is are, are sort of seen as acts of vandalism. And I think that polarity is probably not good. I think we can use this as a teachable moment to have conversations that are art-based. I love the way we have projected on statues. I think my favourite um, piece in that presentation is, is the Robert E. Lee Confederate Monument with the black ballerina dancers. Um, I think we can do more through art that is less violent, potentially. Um, we need to understand that you know statues tell one history, but there are many, and art really is the way to do that in a way that bridges and that heals and isn't this kind of you know violent desecration that actually hurts people. Um, for me, art heals rather than hurts, and I think it's important we can do more with statues to um, teach that there is one side of the story, there is also another than merely ripping them down. So I guess that's you know the way I'd approach it. I love a good debate. Suvendi? I just wanted to um, add one more bit of context um, to what was happening when we did these projections, and that, that was that that during those weeks, we also had the uh, destruction of the uh, Duke and Gorge artworks. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the questions that um, we wanted to pose was why were those, why was the destruction of those artworks, um, you know, in what way did we did we acknowledge sufficiently the kind of hurt and pain and destruction that that caused? Um, and uh, so that, that was sort of one of the questions around us thinking about what I said, you know, monuments, monumentality. What counts as a monument? Mm. Whose monuments can be reduced to rubble? Uh, and, uh, you know, in, in what context is that unthinkable? Mm. Because it clearly wasn't unthinkable uh, for that to happen. And then the other context that I think is important is that um, the state government uh, of WA renamed the Leopold Ranges yes. in that week. Uh, and this was seen as a, a great sort of gesture of, um, you know, which I agree with. I mean, King Leopold, uh, we, don't, we want, don't want to have mountains named after him. <laughs> but who were, who, were the, who were the people who did that naming? The person who did that naming was Forrest. Um, the first, um, you know, um, surveyor, first premier, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. How many things have we got named after Forrest? Uh, you know, so I, I think we sort of need to. Th those, that was the context in which we kind of did our projections. I'm curious, Anna, what you think about this question of statues being torn down. I think you should tear it all down. But <laughs> no, no let, let, I'll, I'll clarify that. I think that there's, I agree, I think art is about healing. And I think there's, as you said, that, that projection is, I mean, th there's been some really wonderful, fascinating new kinds of monuments emerging from this conversation. Um, not just projections, but murals, and, you know, which, as Savendi is saying, is is forcing us to think, rethink, you know, what is, what is a monument? What does it mean to memorialize and to remember? I think, though, the symbolic gesture of tearing things down is important to hold in place because what it reminds us is that if we're going to 
make these changes. We can't make them within, within stru structures as they are. We need to dismantle before we can rebuild. And I think, so, so that's why I think these, the, this sort of, the, the tearing down can also be the ground from which to rebuild in really powerful ways. Um, I think that's really interesting. And if we, had, if we had time for it, I would talk a little bit about the South African example, but I'm the moderator, not a panelist, so I, I won't. <laughs> Hannah, do you think it's, it, it's um, easier to talk about the symbolic and to talk about statues than it is to talk about real bodies and black lives? Um, yeah, it does, it does seem a lot like that, um, that uh, the art seems to gain a lot more attention and discussion, although you know, it's been under attack badly, than, say, Indigenous human rights and what's happening. And Savendi's um, talked about Jook and George, and of course we've got the Burrup rock art, which is also incredibly ancient and which is now under threat from two major um, developments nearby, which is just staggering. We also know the Bunjima people had a, a rock fall uh, last week and uh, we have had um, about, since I've been a young person, but probably before too, there's about 1,000 heritage applications for destroying Aboriginal sites that have been approved. And I think there's about three that have actually been refused. So. This is um, the society that we Indigenous Noongar people grow up with here, that our heritage is absolutely, totally disrespected and violated. And uh, we have a big challenge around legislation, the Heritage Act, which is up for uh, Parliament this year. And uh, it still gives the minister the right to keep just granting approval to destroy heritage. So uh, as um, Senator Pat Dodson said, we're looking at genocide here. You know, if you destroy all Aboriginal sites, and and, and um, places of worship, what is left. Uh, we had a court case a few years ago where the department um, officers decided that they would um, take off about 500 Aboriginal heritage sites from the register and they determined that um, places were not Aboriginal heritage and these people went and performed European-like worship at those places, so we had to go to the court and make sure all of those places were put back on. But um, there is no proper legal protection and there is no proper respect for the, the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, uh, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which respects our right to our culture. This is absolutely um, integral to land and heritage. Mm. So if we think about this um, wonderful new word that I didn't know until today about monumentality, um, can you say a little bit more, Savendi, about what that, what that means in the context of... Um, money, because the Duke and Gorge example is one that where there's a clear, it, it's about the ways in which um, heritage and culture are tied fundamentally to money, to resource extraction, a kind of, there's an economic impetus. And I, I wonder if you can make a comment about that and what that means in a cityscape. Um, and yeah. Yeah, I, I I think it is about money, but it's also about value. It's about what can be valued and what cannot be valued, or what what, what is seen as um, worthless, or uh, you know, so so that it's um, a better word is actually disposable. Mm -hmm. What is disposable, mm. and what is, uh, to use the word I used before, unthinkable. You know, it would be unthinkable. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm kind of obsessed by um, 
these objects in the cases. And, and I think about what kind of desecration would it be seen as if some of those objects, um, some of those uh, images were, you know, removed or, you know, um, what, what, and, you know, so I think it's sort of, yes, it's money, but it's also about value. Mm. It's about what we value and what we can, um, um, you know, how do you make that visible in a way that you see um, the cost that was involved in that. Um, yeah, I can go on, but I'll stop. Yeah, I think that's a really beautiful way of putting it. It's like, what is the cost of this? What is the cost of having this conversation in this place? Uh, what do we value? So, so part of the work I think that many of us are trying to be engaged in at the moment is the work of um, uh, thinking about reframing, about if we recognize that the analysis is that at the moment, um, black life is not valued by many, um, and that is actually institutionally devalued, um, then what are the things that uh, need to be done to shift that so that black life does matter, right? So that's what the movement is about. So, so what are the ways in which um, art can do that? And is it about these conversations with shifting the relationship with monuments? Um, what are the ways beyond the tearing down? So we've used tearing down statues as one example, and I'm interested in hearing other examples that um, one shift value, and I guess um, it's, I'm doing it clumsily, but what I want to do is to think about um, moving beyond talking about black people as bodies towards something that might approximate joy, which is something we, it's very hard to talk about in the context of so much death and so much killing, right? But what happens is that there's a pathology around blackness because it's always violence, it's always death, it's always these terrible things that are happening to us. And I wanna to begin to think about how uh, we talk about joy, what art project, what, what does that look like? Is it possible? Um, and maybe I'll start that with you, Anna. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, um, I do think part of, part of what is needed to move from that pathologization is different values. And so I'm always going back to Audre Lorde and her quote, you know, we can't, the master's tools cannot be used to, to build, to rebuild. And so, um, I mean, so that's a very academic answer. It doesn't give you any no, it's structure, a, but... But it's yeah. a great quote. It is a great, <laughs> but I would just—I mean, I would just think of someone like Amy Sherald, who um, has painted Michelle Obama, um, her portrait. But she recently did a portrait of, um, oh, no, my, sorry, a young woman who was murdered. Um, oh, um, it was in the Times. You forget yeah. exactly who. Um, sorry. So sorry. This is what happens when I I'm think this is a, a, a wonderful em embodiment of how, of the, pro the, the problem, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. um, that all of us have been saying, say her name. African American woman who was. Um, she was shot in her bed. Shot in Brianna, Brianna yeah, Taylor. Sorry. So she has a, she made this beautiful portrait of Brianna in a blue dress. She's, and it's a, so it's a portrait of her as a portrait, and that's on the cover of Time. And I think it's, I mean, it's such a, 
it, it's just, you know, Amy's work is beautiful, but I think that in that question of um, visibility and, um, you know, creating space for, for stories um, and for memorializing black women in a place like the US is just really, I think that's one way of, um, you know, coming at this question of joy. I think the, another way would be thinking about the way some local community artists are working with murals as a site of collaboration um, and memorialization, um, which is, again, very different to statue building. This is a hard question for you, Hannah, because so much of the work that you do is so hard. But I do wonder, I think it's an important one for activists, for people who are tired and burned out. I do wonder about um, how you think about the space for joy in the work that you do. Um, well, we're very um, connected to our culture, so my, um, my, our country. So I go back to my country and all of us say this is how we uh, protect and sustain ourselves. And, um, you know, we believe in our, our ancestors and our, our land. Um, but I've been talking, yarning with um, local women about setting up an Aboriginal women's arts group and, you know, find it pretty shocking that actually we have no Aboriginal women's centre in Perth. We used to 20 years ago. We have no Aboriginal arts centre here. You can go to a lot of communities and there's an investment in Aboriginal arts, but I think there have been um, some federal cutbacks. So this is something that's um, really important for us to to do, but of course we don't have, um, you know, the supports for that. The the philanthropy want to, you know, impose cash debit cards on people, and it's it's really really tough. Same question to you about joy. Well, I want to say two things. Uh, one is I, I I sort of want to quote Audrey Lord, uh, who who we all love um, so much. Well where she talks about the power of the erotic. And uh, the erotic is, is about energy. It's about whatever energizes you. And I think we often sort of, we polarize things, like there's creation and there's destruction. Mm. There's anger and there's, um, you know, there's joy. And really, I think those things are actually more connected than we often acknowledge. And I think that, um, so there is joy, there is power, there is pleasure in naming things, in making things visible, uh, in speaking, you know, in solidarity. All of those things are things of joy. Um, and I think that has been, you know, when Anna was to, Hannah was talking about survival, th that's the kind of secret of survival, really. You know, it's, it's keeping uh, uh, joy and pleasure and the erotic uh, as energy in, in lives of indescribable pain. So, you know, and beauty, of course. So, yeah, I think that would be my answer. It's a beautiful answer. Shaheen, question to you about joy. Yeah. Yeah, joy is really important. Hope and joy are two um, things that are incredibly important in our work. And as Sarandi said, you know, they are not polar opposites. They're so intertwined. And, and so often people are scared to go on these dark journeys because they think the tunnel is dark. But, you know, there is always a light at the other end. Every marginalised voice that ever speaks 
does so to be heard and to have joy and to sing and to go back into, you know, rich, beautiful cultures that exist throughout the global south where people make art and sit together and sing and dance. And these are really joyful practices that have been made invisible. And I think, um, you know, ironically, with the visibility of the suffering over the last year, it's, it's dehumanised these marginalised populations because we're used to seeing slaves in chains and we're used to seeing you know, George Floyd die, and this visibility of suffering has been really hard to bear. And I think at some point we need to, while paying it respect, flip it, and, and I'm sort of um, giving the game away about our next panel, but, you know, we want to talk to the young black Indigenous people that are changing that narrative, so we're not dead bodies, we're not, you know, walking around with targets on our back. We are beautiful, warm people who sing and make art and who dance, and that's an area that so many of us can come together, and I think that's the importance of diverse representation because we don't just want to see pe black people dying on our screens, we want to see black people laughing and dancing and living and you know being joyful, and that's the journey that we're all on, which is why I think we do need to deconstruct, but that reconstruction is richer. Um, and will bring everybody joy. I, I don't think it's just joy for black communities. I think it's joy in equality and freedom for everyone. Wonderful. So um, I couldn't agree more. The never-ending glory of black cultures, the, the joy of Michael Jackson, the joy of you know, everything, the joy of jazz, the joy that I think so many indigenous communities have given to this world wouldn't have existed without, um, of course, the pain that produces those. It is a form of genius, I think. Um, and so, because we have very little time, I'm gonna wrap up this session um, and we're gonna take a super quick break um, because I think this is a wonderful place to end so that we can begin by thinking about hip hop as one of the most important genius things. I wore my t-shirt <laughs> specifically for the panel that comes next. So I wanna say thank you to all of you for an engaging, super quick, super deep dive in such a quick period of time um, into questions that we can never resolve or exhaust. So thank you very much. <laughs>